We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. From Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You can go ahead and take your seats. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, would you help all of us to believe this morning uh, that we are here not by accident, but we are here because you have brought us here, because you see us, and you know us, and you love us, and you desire to speak to us. So we ask that you give us ears to hear this morning. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, my name is Brent. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're new this morning, I want to especially welcome you. We have been, uh, we're, we're about three weeks away from Easter right now. Easter is uh, Sunday, April 17th. And it is going to be a great Sunday. We are planning a huge party after the service. We're going to have food trucks and fun activities for the kids because Easter is a day to celebrate. It is a day where Christians all over the world are rejoicing 
in the hope of the resurrection. And so I hope you'll come. I hope you'll bring a friend. But here's the deal. Uh, to get to Easter, first you have to go through the cross. And I don't just mean Jesus' cross. I mean our cross. You say, what do you mean our cross? Well, Jesus says it this way. Jesus says it this way. He says, if anyone would follow me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. And what that means, you say, what does that mean? That means that sometimes the Christian life can feel like death. The Christian life is hard. And it's hard because it runs against our natural impulses in so many ways. And so there are many times where it feels like death. But here's the reality. Though there are times that it feels like death, it always leads to life. Following Jesus always leads to life. It always leads to resurrection. It always leads to Easter. And for the last couple weeks, as we've been in this series called Following Jesus, we've been looking at some of the ways this is true. We've been talking about what does it mean that we are to follow Jesus in our suffering. That's not easy. That feels like death sometimes. Last week we talked about following Jesus in humility. Next week we're going to talk about following Jesus in rejection. You know, Jesus was rejected. And if you are a Christian, you will experience rejection. But this week, this passage is all about humility. Following Jesus, I mean, all about forgiveness, sorry. Following Jesus in forgiveness. And I've been thinking a lot this week about how we live in a cultural moment of unforgiveness. Uh, Vox, the, the news platform, is actually running a whole series of articles right now on, on how we as a society are struggling to forgive. And one of the articles in the series is entitled this. It's entitled, Everyone Wants Forgiveness, But No One is Being Forgiven. And the article talks about how we are in this cycle of outrage as a culture. And, and this is what the author writes. The author writes, the, the state of modern outrage is a cycle. We wake up mad, we go to bed mad, and in between, the only thing that might change is what's making us angry. The one gesture that could offer substantive change, or at least provide a way forward, forgiveness, seems perpetually beyond our reach. In the public sphere, we are constantly being asked to weigh in on the question of forgiveness as a cultural process. The consensus thus far has largely been that American culture has no room for the concept. In a tweet from March 2021, Atlantic writer Elizabeth Brunig wrote, as a society, we have absolutely no coherent story, none whatsoever, about a person who has done wrong can atone, can make amends, and can retain some continuity between their life and identity before and after the mistake. In other words, this is the Vox article continues, in other words, everyone wants forgiveness, but no one is being forgiven, and no one knows how to negotiate forgiveness at a cultural level. In an era of polarized politics, 
users to conduct informal modern uh, tribunals without a lot of due process, seeking and granting public forgiveness is increasingly complicated. Everyone wants forgiveness, but no one is being forgiven. You know, John Perkins knows a lot about forgiveness. John Perkins was a leader in the civil rights era. He experienced incredible oppression. Uh, his, 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 his brother was killed by white police officers in Mississippi. John Perkins himself was an unjustly imprisoned. And ever since, he is, he's over 90 years old now. He's given his life to racial reconciliation. And John Perkins recently said this. He said, this is the first generation that has turned hate into an asset. See, everyone wants forgiveness. Everyone needs forgiveness. But no one seems to know how to do it. We need the words and the way of Jesus in this passage. And let me just say this. Preaching a sermon on forgiveness is a weighty thing. Is a weighty thing for me as a pastor because I don't know everyone's story in this room, but I know a lot of them. And there are stories of deep betrayal, of incredible pain, of unspeakable violence and injustice. There are stories of abuse in this room. And sometimes a sermon on forgiveness, no matter how well intended it is, can add salt to your wounds. Because it, it makes forgiveness sound easy, or it seems to dismiss the need for justice and accountability. And I want you to hear me say before we dive into this, that the forgiveness that Jesus is talking about in this passage is neither of those. It is neither of those, and we actually see it in this story. So let's talk about forgiveness. Jesus tells a parable on forgiveness, and it teaches us three things about forgiveness. Why we need to do it, what it looks like when we do it, and how we can do it. Okay? Why we need to do it, what it looks like when we do it, and how we can do it. So first, why do we need to do it? Well, one answer... The first answer is we need to do it because Jesus tells us to do it. He commands us to do it. That's, that's how the passage starts off. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how, long, how, how many times should I forgive someone who wrongs me? Seven times? Now, what scholars think Peter is doing here is uh, in, in the first century, the rabbinic teaching kind of the popular rabbinic teaching, was that you forgive someone three times. And so what they think Peter is doing is he's doubling it, and then for good measure he's throwing in one extra. So Peter is feeling very self-confident right now. He thinks he's going above and beyond what Jesus commands in forgiveness. But Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, that doesn't mean at 78 you get to quit, okay? <laughs> because numbers in the Bible always have great significance. And 77 is Jesus' way of saying, if you follow me, you are called to unlimited forgiveness. 
infinite forgiveness. See, if, 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 if there is anything that a Christian ought to be known by, it's that we are people who are radically forgiving. And if there's anything that the church ought to be shaped by, we ought to be a community of radical forgiveness. So why do we need to forgive? Well, because Jesus tells us to. Now, if you're a Christian, that ought to be enough for you. But, I mean, is it? Honestly, is it? Is it enough? I, I mean, I don't, I don't think it is, actually, for us. You know, one of the things that I've learned in parenting, one of my, one of my great lessons that I've learned in parenting, is that when I tell my kids to do something, and they look at me and they say, why? And I say, because I said so. We don't get very far, okay? It does not get us very far. They might do what I tell them to do, but their heart is not in it. Do you notice that at the end of this passage, Jesus says, you must forgive them from your heart? Jesus is after way more than just external obedience. He's after your heart. See, we, need, we, need, we actually need reasons. We need to understand why Jesus commands us to forgive. And that is actually one of the main teachings that we can draw out of this parable. Is not that it's why Jesus tells the parable. He commands him to forgive, but then he tells the parable. You know why he tells the parable? To tell us why we need to forgive. To tell us why he commands it. And the story goes like this. There's this great king who has a servant. And this servant owes him a large amount of money. And the king brings him in, and the servant begs the king to forgive him and to cancel the debt, and the king does. And then that servant goes out, and he finds someone else who owes him money. And rather than, can he refuses to cancel the debt. He refuses to forgive. And so the king brings this first servant back in, and it says in verse 32, it says in verse 32, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Now we hear that and we think, gosh, God is mean. God is vindictive. God is uh, he's cruel. do not always work in a one-to-one -one correlation. That's really important because what Jesus is trying to teach us here is not something about the character of God. He's trying to teach us something about the consequence of an unforgiving heart. Let me say that again. Jesus is not trying to teach us something about the character of God. He is tortured. If you do not learn to forgive, you will live a life of torment. You will be in the prison of your own anger. You'll be trapped. And your heart will become cold and cynical and hard. And you will be a miserable person. Charles Dickens, in his book, Great Expectations. I know it's been a minute for some of you since you've read this book. 
So let me just remind you, in his book, Great Expectations, he creates one of the greatest characters in all of literature, which is Miss Havisham. And if you remember the story, Pip is, is the main character in the book. And when Pip first meets Miss Havisham, she is living in this ruined mansion. And being in her house is very strange. Because in one room, there's this rotting wedding cake. Miss Havisham always wears her wedding dress. And all the clocks in the house have been stopped to the exact same time. And what Pip learns is that her backstory is one of great pain. She was engaged. And on the day of her wedding, her fiancé abandoned her. And not only did he abandon her, but, but he never loved her. He was a con artist. And because of what he did to her, she is now stuck in the past, and she is unable to move on. In fact, all the clocks have been stopped to the very time of her wedding. Now, she's not just stuck in her past. You know what she's stuck in? She is stuck in her anger. She is alone, and she is miserable, and she wants everybody around her to be miserable. In fact, she, she adopts this beautiful girl named Estella. And her one goal for Estella is that many men would fall in love with her and that she would break their hearts by not loving any of them back. You know what happens at the end of the story? Miss Havisham's wedding dress catches on fire and she dies. She, she literally burns in the anger of her unforgiveness. Corrie ten Boom, who was a survivor of the Holocaust, she spent time in concentration camps. She lost family members, but she survived. And after the Holocaust, she devoted her life to helping survivors of the Holocaust survive. And she says this. She says, those about her experience of watching people recover were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed bitterness remained horrible as that. Now, Corey Ten Boom and Charles Dickens and Jesus are all saying the same thing. That when you refuse to forgive someone, you are not hurting them. You're hurting yourself. That, that, that bitterness, it's like a boomerang. It always comes back and it hits you. That the inability to forgive, the unwillingness to forgive, that it, 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 it confines you in the dungeon of bitterness and resentment and hatred. It is like a cancer that is slowly eating away at your soul, at your humanity. It kills your ability to love. It makes you more like a creature of hell than like a creature of heaven. And it leaves you isolated and miserable. Now do you see why Jesus ends this parable on forgiveness with such a serious warning? He's not being harsh. He is not trying to be harsh. He is being utterly realistic about what unforgiveness does to you. See, some of us in this room, 
We have been hanging on to hurt for years. Things have been said to you. Things have been done to you. And we have, we have recorded it in our minds. And we just play that recording over and over and over again. And you know what it's done? It's led us to the exact same place of Ms. Havisham. We've come to hate a, a particular person or a particular type of person or maybe a whole gender or a whole racial group or a whole ethnic group. See, it, and it's destroying you, but Jesus is for you. And he is calling you out of the misery of bitterness and into the freedom of forgiveness. Bitterness is a cruel master. Jesus is a kind master. His commands are always for our good. And this is why he says, forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive again and again and again. Now, that brings us to the second point. What does it look like? That's a really important question. I think there's a lot of confusion about what forgiveness actually looks like. And Jesus gets very practical in this passage. And he tells us that it looks like three things. And we see all three of them actually in what the, the king says to the servant in verse 27. Look at the text. It says, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. What does forgiveness look like? It looks like those three things. So let's reflect on each of them for just a moment. First is you have to take pity on the person who wronged you. Now, the, the, English, the English word pity doesn't really get at the Greek translation here because the, the word literally means his heart went out to him. What does it mean for your heart to go out to someone? You know, we, we are surrounded by homelessness. And it's very easy to become numb and calloused. You can, you can walk by someone sitting on the sidewalk who has no food to eat. And they're asking every person that passes for help. And it is so easy to just walk right by them and not even see them. But imagine if you spent the last four years living out of your car. And now you have finally gotten back on your feet. And you have a roof over your head and you have money to buy food. What happens when you walk past that person on the street? Your heart goes out to them. You know why? Because you see yourself in them. You've been there. You know what it's like to walk in their shoes. For your heart to go out to someone means that you, you humanize them. Now, how does this relate to forgiveness? Well, when someone wrongs us, one of the things we tend to do is we dehumanize them. We, we don't just dehumanize them, we demonize them. We say, how could someone do something like that? Something so selfish, something so hurtful. I would never, ever do anything like that. Uh, Alice Marwick Who's a, she's a researcher who's written extensively about online harassment and cancel culture. She says that when groups of people on social media believe their moral code has been violated, that they feel so justified in their, in their harassment of their targets 
that they actually refuse to acknowledge it as harassment. And this is what she writes. She says, when you think of somebody as being immoral, that shuts down the ability to have a conversation. It encourages dehumanization and seeing other people as the other rather than as actual people. There are places where our sense of morality is so strong that we don't believe the other person can be redeemed. Forgiveness starts by having your heart go out to someone. That means that you begin to see that they are human like you. They are equally as broken and equally redeemable. That like you, they are both sinner and sinned against. And that like you, they have a story. The Quakers have this saying, they say, an enemy is someone whose story you have not heard. See, forgiveness starts by seeing people in light of their humanity and not in light of the hurt that they've caused you. It starts by having the humility to say, you know, either I, I, I have done the exact same thing as them, or if I haven't, there but for the grace of God go I. That is the first step of what forgiveness looks like. What's the second one? He cancels the debt. Okay, what does that mean? Well, notice that the servant says to the master in verse 26, be patient with me. The word here for patience is the word long-suffering. And I, I think that's really interesting because forgiveness is a form of suffering. I mean, think about it. You know, suffering hurts. And so does forgiveness. It's hard. It is a form of suffering. How exactly is it a form of suffering? Well, it's a form of suffering because forgiveness always creates a debt. That's the metaphor that Jesus is using in this passage. There's a servant who owes the king a debt. Now, in the, in the parable, it's a financial debt, right? He owes him this large amount of money. But think about this. When the king forgives him the debt, what happens to that debt? Does it just vanish? Does it just go away? You know, if we went out to dinner... And we got to the end of the meal and the bill came and you said, hey, you know, let me just, let me just, I'll, I'll put this on my card and you can Venmo me later. And then I text you later that afternoon to get your Venmo info and like a good church member, you say, I, don't worry about it, pastor. This is on me, okay? <laughs> what, what happens to that debt? it's still going to show up on your credit card statement. I mean, it, it'll cost me nothing, but it's going to cost you something. And you see, the same is true with forgiveness. When someone wrongs you, it creates an emotional debt. You feel like they owe you. And you have one of two options. Either you make them pay or you pay. So either you make, you make them pay. You can make them pay emotionally. You can be cold to them. You can be hostile to them. You can be vindictive towards them. You can make them pay physically by retaliating. You can make them pay relationally 
or socially or even professionally by slandering them, by, by ruining their reputation, by trying to get everybody around you on your side. There's all sorts of ways to make them pay. But the other option is you pay. You refuse to retaliate. You give up the right to hurt them back emotionally or physically or socially or relationally. See, when you forgive, you absorb the debt rather than making them absorb the debt. And that's why forgiveness is a form of suffering. That's why it's hard, because it's costly. It always costs you something. And maybe you're thinking, you know, okay, sounds nice, but how unrealistic. Because what, how does this work in a world where there is real evil and there is real injustice? You know, are we just supposed to let people get away with stuff? No. And that brings us to the last aspect of forgiveness. That it doesn't just mean taking pity or canceling the debt, but what does he do? It says that he let him go. Now, what does it mean that the servant, that the king let the servant go? I want you to notice something. That when the king lets the servant go, this servant goes out and he refuses to cancel the debt of this other man. And it doesn't just say he refuses to cancel the debt, but it says in verse 28 that he grabs him and he chokes him. There's physical violence taking place here. And the king does not let this go unpunished. See, biblical forgiveness does not mean that wrongdoing goes unpunished. It does not mean that people are not held accountable. It does not mean that there aren't real consequences. And this is so important for those of us in this room who have suffered real abuse and real oppression. Because any of you that says forgiveness just sort of sweeps things under the rugs is not forgiveness according to Jesus. In fact, for those who do not get justice in this world, the only possible way for you to cancel the debt is to believe that God will not let go any evil unresolved. That there will be a day of reckoning. Vengeance is the Lord's, says the Bible. So what does it mean to, to let the person go who hurts you? What does that mean? All right, sometimes when pastors preach sermons, we come across as superhuman. And especially in a sermon on forgiveness, it can really sound like we're saying, hey, this is something you need to work on, but not necessarily something that we need to work on. So I'm going to be very honest with you here for a moment and tell you that I struggle terribly with forgiveness. There is someone in my life that I have been working to forgive for almost two decades. And I have worked and worked and worked, and it has been hard. And I don't think I'm quite there yet. But a number of years ago, I was actually sitting with a Christian therapist who was kind of walking with me through my, my pain and my hurt. And I remember saying to him, you know, what does forgiveness even mean? What does that even mean? And he said some words to me that I don't know if I will ever forget. He said, forgiveness 
is when the person who wronged you no longer has power over you. Forgiveness is when the person who wronged you no longer has power over you. I mean, think about that. That is so profound. If you've ever been really hurt, if you've ever been really wronged, if you've ever been really betrayed, you know, you know what happens. You think about that person and you think about that hurt all the time. You get angry when life goes well for them and you rejoice when life goes poorly for them. And you might even fantasize about their demise. Now, what is going on? What is going on? You see, it's not that they're not free. It's that you are not free. You are under their spell. You have not let them go. They have incredible power over your emotions. Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in prison in South Africa. After he was released, years after he That is called real forgiveness. Real freedom and real forgiveness is when the person who hurts you no longer has power over you. You let them go. You are so free. You're so free that you can actually desire their blessing and not their cursing. You can speak well of them to others. You can assume the best and not the worst about them. And you can desire God to work in their life. This is what forgiveness looks like. Your heart goes out. You cancel the debt. And you let them go. And Jesus says, go and do this. So go and do it. Is that helpful? No. It is not. How in the world are we going to do it? Well, I'm glad you're asking, because that's the last point. How can we do it? All right, Jesus ends this parable in verse 35 with, I think, words that are, that are, that are a little confusing. Because he says, he says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, if you've been around our church any length of time, hopefully you've heard us say this. You can do nothing to earn God's love. Nothing. Salvation is the free gift of grace. But then you hear these words of Jesus in verse 35, and you say, well, it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like Jesus is saying, if I don't forgive others, then God won't love me. Is this what Jesus is saying? That we earn God's love through forgiveness? No. He is saying that whether or not we forgive others is a window into our hearts that reveals whether or not we have experienced the love of God and the free gift of grace. And here's why. The key to this whole parable, the key to the whole parable is the different amounts that the two servants owe. Uh, the man who owes the unforgiving servant, verse 28 
says that he owed him a hundred silver coins. Now, the word coins here is actually the word denarii in the Greek. And uh, one denarii was one day's worth of wages. So he owes him about, about four months worth of wages. But, but the unforgiving servant, look at this. It says in verse 24 that the unforgiving servant owed the king 10,000 bags of gold. Now, the word for gold here is actually the word talents. And talents was the largest unit of currency possible. One talent, got to do some math here for a second. One talent equaled 6,000 denarii. So 10,000 talents meant 60 million denarii. That is, that is over 200,000 years worth of wages. And if you were lost kind of in all of those numbers, here's the point. One dude owed a lot more than the other. A lot more. See, but he, his, great, his debt was much greater, but he did not realize it. Do you see this in verse 26? That he comes to the king and he says, be patient with me until I can pay everything back. 200,000 years worth of wages. That is a debt that no one could repay. But he thought he could. And that is why he went out and strangled someone else who owed him far less. See, his inability to forgive was a window into his own heart. He does not understand the degree to which his own debt has been canceled. He cannot forgive because he does not feel his own forgiveness. And this is the main point of the parable. It is the main teaching that Jesus has for us this morning, that our ability to forgive others depends entirely to the degree to which we know and feel our own forgiveness from God. See, if you feel like your debt is small, you will forgive no one. But if you feel like your debt is big, you can forgive anyone. Corrie ten Boom, who I mentioned earlier, survivor of the Holocaust, she tells a story of uh, after the war of, of meeting one of her former, former Nazi prison guards. And uh, she was actually she was speaking at an event on the forgiveness of Christ. And after, after she finished speaking, uh, this, she was approached by a man who identified himself as, as a former guy, guard from a concentration camp at Ravensbrück, which was the camp where she had been and the camp where her sister Betsy had died. And as soon as she saw him, she recognized him. He was one of the most cruel and vindictive guards in the camp. And he reached out his hand to her. And this is what he said. He said, what a fine message. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Will you forgive me? And this is what Corey Ten Boom writes about the encounter. She says, I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again been forgiven, 
and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. And I had to do it. I knew that. And so I prayed silently, Jesus, help me. And as she reached out her hand to take his, she said that something incredible took place. This is what she writes. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, and tears filled my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. I had never known love so intensely as I did then. Brothers and sisters, forgiveness, whether or not we forgive, is a window into our hearts for whether or not we have really, truly tasted the forgiveness of God. And that is why God invites us to this table week after week. Because this table is a window into God's heart. And at this table, what we find is a God who sees you and me in all of our mess and in all of our brokenness and in all of the ways we have betrayed him and failed him. And rather than lashing out at us, his heart went out to us. He saw that we had a debt that we could never repay. And rather than making us pay, he came to pay. And now you can be free. You can be forgiven. And to the degree that you know this and experience this, you'll be able to go out and do the same with others. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, what grace we find at this table that we come as people who owe you far more than we even know. And yet rather than holding it against us, rather than being angry at us, you have come in mercy and in grace and in forgiveness and you have made a way for us to come to this table and to come to you and to drink and to eat of that forgiveness. Would you help us to do that this morning? Some of us in this room, we have never tasted it. We have longed to taste it. We have, been, we have longed to be free of bitterness and hatred and hurt and we have tried and we have tried and we have tried, but nothing has worked. Would you help us to come today, whether it's for the first time 
for the thousandth time and to drink again of your grace and kindness to us. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.